Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. And we've got another exciting episode today with a great guest. Today's guest is the manager of enterprise change management at one of the nation's largest communications companies. Please welcome the frontline innovators, Matt Pita. Hello, Matt. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. And uh, this is probably breaking the record for the longest ever scheduling. All right. I to do on a podcast. A couple of changes on your part, a couple of changes on mine. I very much am uh, happy that we finally uh, got to pull this together. So thanks for joining today. Good stuff. Thanks, Justin. Hey, any record, I'll take it. All right. Perfect. <laughs> we don't have a trophy for this, though. Ah, okay. So, um, Tell me what is, uh, I, I want to get your perspective on what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. Yeah, sure. So let's put COVID aside for a moment. Um, to me right now, especially, and always hard to do like broad generation generalizations on large groups, always best to just ask them, but largely too much change all at once with no input on the change would be, I would say, the number one. We, you know, we asked the question a lot in our organization and the one we recently heard, which kind of killed me, was um, change for change sake is what they said. And geez, what a, what a monumental failure for companies who work so hard. You know these people in the background, the program leaders, all of them, they're putting their blood, sweat, and tears in these changes and the people who actually need to make the change thinks it's just for change sake. So I know we'll get more into the, change management side of things. But yeah, for me, it would be too much change all at once with no input into it. When you say change for change sake, is that, do you think that's the perspective of the frontline workers in the organization that, that feel like they're just being asked to do things differently for the sake of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nailed it. And that's, uh, that's not their fault. Hopefully that's obvious. It's, it's right. the, the leadership teams, the program team, the change leads, you know, it's their job to, you know, the why I feel like is almost overstated, but the why is so crucial. Um, we'll probably talk about it a little bit more, but often you say like, hey, where does change start or where does culture start? You'll ask people and they say it starts from the top. And my opinion, it's the opposite. It really should start from the bottom um, in that, you know, you, you have a sales background, right, Justin? I do. So like if I was going to, I had like a Wrangler to sell or something, I, I wouldn't go to you and be like, Justin, I got this car it's got cool lights on it it's got heavy suspension i would never come to you like that instead i'd say justin what are you looking for and you'd be like man i want the wind in my hair i want to be able to stand up tall in my whatever car it is and then i would take that wrangler and sell that and that's how change should be right i mean it's really you're selling and you need to really understand the front lines perspective to sell well I've learned so much from guests on the show and, and already now you're reminding me of the um, the similarities between marketing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Change management. And it really is. They, they are art and science of persuasion and, and bringing humans along with an idea. And, 
you know, this show has helped me realize that so many times when we think of big transformational projects inside large organizations, we've gotten way too focused on the what and the how, you know, about the technology itself and the new database and the new, you know, um, the, the new capabilities that this yeah. system is going to bring us. But we lose uh, a lot of our audience by not really helping them understand, you know, what's in it for them. Yeah, nailed it. Um... Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, when, especially in digital transformation, technology adoption, you're developing something, you get a bunch of centralized leaders in the room and they're like, yep, this is it. This is the right direction. We got it. And they're like, oh, probably, yeah, they usually do the right thing, right? Somebody's usually like, oh, check with a couple of our frontline leaders or maybe even the frontline. And that kind of stops because people are busy. And so they usually, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but they'll go to one or two right? I'll just go to a couple just to check the box. And they'll be like, hey, and they'll list all these cool features. They won't talk about the challenges. And of course, they're going to be like, yeah, sounds great. And then they'll end up, you know, usually they throw out like a minimally viable product that isn't actually minimally viable. And that's one of the, you know, biggest mistakes we see in, in tech adoption today. Um, but yeah, to your point, exactly that marketing, whenever we get a new change manager and they have marketing background, it's, it's a good sign. Yeah. That's good. Well, let's, uh, before we get too far down uh, all the, the change management topics that we want to talk about today, let's get a better understanding of, of you and your background. Tell me uh, all the way back to uh, how you got started in your career and your education and, and a little bit about your uh, professional journey. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll be brief, um, give you a little professional on the personal side. So professionally, education-wise, industrial organizational psychology, PhD, um, most of my career or majority, I should say, barely spent at a big four consulting firm doing org transformation today. Very fortunate to be in one of the larger communications companies in the country. Um, most of my career has been org transformation, change management, tech adoption, employee engagement, which is probably my passion, um, retention, leadership development. So that's kind of been my world most of my life, I would say. Uh, my passion more than anything is powering organizations, powering people. And the tricky part is um, like maximizing well-being for people. Um, so that's kind of high level. And then did you say you're interested in sort of how, how I got there? I do. But before we go past yeah. the, the education piece, I, I want you to tell us a little bit more about the PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. Um, I love that field of study, but you've obviously gone in pretty deep on it. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, geez, it's interesting because it's pretty small, small field, but it covers a, a ton a really, really broad um, topic areas. So everything from team building to org design, right? Um, training to learning um, individuals, you know, some people go into uh, executive coaching, where most, you know, land more on the organizational, large organizational side. Um, so really broad where it transfers into my work today, or where it really gives me advantage, aside from having a PhD, so kind of lend yourself well to some speaking events and things like that. Um, it's the statistics side, actually, and the analysis side and the psychometric side. Uh, so especially when you're working with some of the really top-notch organizations, kind of for me, the really big differentiator between those titans of industry and the smaller organizations is how data forward they are. So that's where it really helps to be able to work with both those really 
the people who are really much more knowledgeable than me than data and then be able to do the application of it um, helps support that kind of fine line. That's awesome. Did, did going and get your PhD allow you to advance in your career in a way that would otherwise not have been possible? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It, I would say it delayed it, the start of it, to really start going on it. So I'd say like, uh, you know, my friends and stuff probably had a head start, but there's, all, there's less limitation, I think, now. And I've been told that too. So in organizations, you hear commonly, sometimes it's a degree that will hold folks back. Not always, definitely not needed. I should be very clear with that. You can be very much as successful, much more successful without a degree, but it does, it helps. Let's we'll put it that way. So it will make up for some of my, my weaknesses as I continue to progress through my career. Yeah. So I, I've interviewed a lot of change management professionals on this podcast, and I've often joked, and I even joked with you before we started recording today, that very few people have ended up in change management because they said from earlier on in their career, oh, I can't you know, wait to grow up and be a change manager at some point, right? But your education path kind of tells a, a little bit of a different story. I, I sense that in some way you imagined ending up in a role, if not identical to where you're in today or something very close to it. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's very introspective of you because we didn't talk about that part before. You just yeah. said that they are different. I don't know if you read that on me or not, but yeah, it's interesting for me that it kind of always just slowly kind of head this way. To your point, probably wasn't growing up thinking this is where I'd land, but it has there has been components that have or antecedents that have brought me to where I am today that are pretty logical and make sense. And I'll give you a few, and some are, and I'll give you a story too if you're interested. Definitely. If I want to, if I want to dive deep into like my psyche of what stories. moment got me where I am. Yeah, uh, we can hit that too. But yeah, so a couple a couple of things I think. Um, mom was clinical psychologist. Dad was mostly in business, so organizational psychology. That's a pretty easy one. Um, grew up in Massachusetts, so you got a culture of like pretty stern, um, not exactly outwardly super friendly people in my perspective. And then went did educate all my education in Florida now in Atlanta, so constantly in the South where people are like very friendly. We joke about the like toll workers. It's like the joke, like compare Massachusetts toll worker to a Florida yeah. toll worker. Um, but uh, so like that kind of really resonated with me. So I was like, oh, I can be like nice all the time. Like that's a normal thing. Um, the book that influenced me the most was uh, How to Make Friends and Influence People. So if you're interested in my working style or my leadership style, it's that. And I honestly have to reread it probably um, and my first job was in what was really focused in employee engagement, which continues to be my passion. So people, it's, you can see the theme here. It's a lot around people. Um, and going back to that story. So I'll take you back just into seventh grade, actually not a good year for me. Our, uh, class was putting on a play required, not definitely not optional, putting on a play. I got my part and my part was a singing part or had a part where I had to sing. No, I have no musical ability. No, still I'm can't sing. Just thinking about your experience. Never cut. Yeah, seven. yeah exactly. You have to sing in front of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you got the deal. I have a flashbulb memory out around this. So I can remember it like it was yesterday. That's how anxiety inducing it was. And so I just remember being on the stage, you know, everyone's stage exit, right? It's only me. Spotlight on me. Can't sing. So I'm quivering through it every moment thinking, I, I should I just leave? Should I just stop? 
And then I remember going backstage and just like head and hands, like crying over, I didn't know at the time it was anxiety, but like over that level of anxiety. And it took me a really long time to not be terrified of uh, public speaking. You might be able to hear my voice even just thinking about the moment. Uh, but I had such a passion in it, I worked on it. And I feel, I love it now. Well, Matt, um, I want to surprise you on the show because we have a recording of that that we're going to play. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but anyway, you got the gist. So like I said, passion, um, like individual performance, powering organizations um, and well-being. You can see how it kind of st- all kind of encompass in that in that moment for me. I think if you want to deep, dig deep into me, that that probably where it's kind of all started. I, so I think that's um, that, that's a great segue into some of the change management conversations, because I think one thing that I've realized in, and I regret that this only became evident to me in the last few years is that a lot of the challenges with technology adoption are rooted in insecurities and anxieties that our user population have. And I've told the story, there's a guy named Eric, I must've told the story a thousand times now, today will be at least a thousand and one about, uh, he was a truck driver at an organization that we work with. And I got to go do a lot, ride along with him. It was two o'clock in the morning because that's when these guys do their deliveries. And we were talking about technology adoption and he used words like stressful and anxiety and angry, like about all of these changes. And it made me reflect back on a lot of the interactions that I had with other men and women on the front lines. And I realized that they weren't just being difficult for the sake of being difficult, right? Right. They had some real genuine um, emotional responses to what we were trying to do. And to, to me and maybe the project teams that I worked on at the time, it was very matter of fact, like, hey, we're trying to improve the technology. We're trying to make things more efficient. We're trying to better the company, right? To us, it was very matter of fact, we understood the vision. And I think I greatly underestimated, I know I greatly underestimated the emotional response that, that those folks could have. And um, it's really shaped my thinking going forward. I've, I've had a handful of experiences before and, and since that conversation with Eric that have really shaped my thinking about that, but it's, it's a real response. And I think to ignore it is actually to set up this, the, the whole transformation initiative for failure. If we just ignore it and act like we can just kind of plow through it as if it, it, it doesn't exist. Yep. Well said. Um, and if not failure, a slower return on investment, if yeah. you want to think of it from a business lens and not a person lens, yeah. um, which is all change management is um to me anyway their primary objective should be outcomes um yeah so as far as that individual i always think about it as like stressors so i don't i don't know how much you've dug into stressor research out there but they're additive and you know, let's let's be and you justin let's brainstorm with me a couple of stressors so just work stressors so things that stress you out at work so i'll start so this isn't the case for me my manager is awesome but let's say not great right um you know new technology is coming um you know don't love my commute to work what's what's one you got well i you know i'm a ceo of a small tech startup so i've got investors i've got customers okay. I've got you know a business partner i've got uh, team members on the team i mean i've got an unlimited okay. source of stress every day yeah perfect so you're and they're additive too right so we're adding them up and then what people forget or a lot of people in business forget is there's outside of work and those stressors aren't a separate bucket. It's not like uh, how you go out to eat and you got your food bucket and then you get dessert and that's a whole separate section. <laughs> stressors aren't the, same, aren't the same way, right? They're additive. So then you have, my grandmother has COVID 
uh, my son's not doing well at school, you know, all these, I have to go into work even though COVID is happening and I'm a little resentment, resentful about it because all my corporate folks don't have to. So all these stressors are adding. And then on top of that, stressors pull away from cognitive resources. So now they're making more mistakes, you know, it affects emotional regulation, all of that. Um, so that sort of stressors come up more than I think it would for most people who haven't sort of been introduced to that concept yet. And then there's kind of two things you can do with stressors. You either remove them. So, you know, okay, we're going to postpone that digital transformation because there's too much on our people. Cool. That's one way. Or you can mitigate them. And th so there's a lot of ways to do that. But one way, for instance, would be like uh, meditation, for instance, might be a, something you can do as an individual, but it could also just be like more manager support or something like that, more consistency from structurally or something like that. But yeah, so said that um, about their perspective, I, I, I often go back to stressors for folks and that helps you put them in their shoes too. So make, to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying, would you categorize what you're describing as part of like change saturation? Is that the same concept or is that, is there something different about the way? You're yeah, saying? all related, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So you said something that I think is really interesting. So I had a conversation with a, a, a group that a group I mentioned earlier, all of the other podcast participants, um, we get together on the first Friday of every month to, to talk about just some of these kinds of topics in longer form. And one of the things that came up today in that conversation was about change saturation and the impact that it has on the organization and about some of these transformations. Now you mentioned something I think is interesting, which is that those stressors impact the cognitive resources. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I mean, my take is, or from the sound of it, it's it's like we're we're actually by loading these folks up with so many things at one time, we're actually reducing their ability, their cognitive ability to handle that, which is probably thwarting the outcomes that we're we're trying to achieve. Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, no, you nailed it. Um, and important to mention, it's a, it's theoretical, right? There's no way for us to be able to count cognitive resources I mean, or anything right, like that, but. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, and there's a bunch of ways to think about it. So often you think of it, it sometimes it's referred, referred to, to as resource depletion. And sometimes it's even thought of, so Marshall Goldsmith has a book out called Triggers and he talks about resource depletion through day. So you're going to do your better work primarily earlier in the day because your resources are depleted. As the day goes along, run into stressors, you're running out, your resources are getting depleted towards the end of the day. Bad time to ask people to make good decisions, important decisions. Um, but yeah, to your point, um, on a broader scale, the idea is that the same resources that um, help you manage stress are the same bucket that helps you make decisions or succeed using logic and are the same resources that have you regulate your work and speaking of frontline workers like emotion this comes what comes up in the research a lot is emotional regulation so when you're working with customers you have to regulate your emotions a lot because you're probably not happy all the time but you have to be because it's your job and that's a stress that that pulls resources to have to do that to have to fake that emotion is a resource depleter um so that sort of if hopefully that answers your question in terms of how i think about it it does what it doesn't answer yet though is yeah. you also said something else like grandma's got COVID, kids not doing well in school. Those yeah. are other stressors. We can't yeah. compartmentalize them as much idealistically. You know, we'd love to think that we can compartmentalize them so that when I start my shift at eight o'clock, right. just put those other things away. But I can't. I know yeah. that personally. Um, exactly. So how do we how do we measure and account for the fact that there are stressors that are coming in from 
things that we may not even be aware of, and maybe it's not our place to even ask if there are those other stressors, but if they're impacting our ability to facilitate change inside the organization, like how do we deal with that? Yeah, so I'll break it into three different pieces. So one is structurally or governance-wise from an organization. A lot of the organizations are recognizing if they're not adapting, they're becoming obsolete. So there's a lot of pressure to change real fast. There's a lot of smart people who can change real fast. What most organizations aren't very good at doing is having some sort of understanding of what the intake of the change recommendations are and how much time that puts on frontline worker. So that's more of a governance side of things. The second one is, so people and understanding people, that's a big measurement thing. So measuring stuff, lots of ways to do it. We're getting better at it. Obviously technology is helping with some of those like, um, instead of like lagging indicators, leading indicators and always on measuring, always on things like now we can, you know, assess uh, qualitatively how people are discussing on their discussion boards, right? And that can give you a sense of where people are, but then, you know, surveys are great, but they're time consuming. Um, so your assessment strategy is essential for that perspective. Um, and I forgot the third component, but those are those are two starting ways anyway, just understand that there's an individual side that you have to understand, there's an organizational structural side to support that. And then there's sort of that measurement piece that you kind of have to have to always have that pulse on the your people. What do you think, or do you think I should ask first, is different about all of the considerations you just mentioned as it relates to the men and women on the front lines versus those folks that have more traditional corporate jobs? And you mentioned something before we kind of skimmed over it, but I, I want you to know I heard it, which is the, the potential for some resentment about the men yeah. and women on the front lines that are still having to go do their job. They're having to deal with all the same stressors that the rest of us are having to deal with, but the folks at corporate get to work at home and complain about too many Zoom calls while you know the, the men and women that are doing field service jobs and stuff like that have to go out to the field, right? Are, are these things different, do you think, for frontline work versus those of us that would be kind of knowledge workers or folks working from a laptop? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a couple of things that come to top of mind. So the first is, being in front of a laptop makes you highly accessible. So naturally super easy to get people's opinions. I'm really not even using, I don't like email anymore. I'm just using chat for most of my day-to-day -day now, but obviously can't just chat someone on the front, front line more often than not, or at least, you know, that deskless worker. Um, and the second thing, which is kind of similar, I know it connects to Skillful a little bit more as well. And I know the learning, some of you are gonna hear, learning preferences and they're going to get anxious because there's some research that says people don't really have learning styles. Anyway, all that to say is my opinion, if you're going to talk about a group that when you think about like kinesthetic or auditory or visual learners, those who are in jobs who are more hands-on are probably due to all the things that led them to be in the career they're currently today, probably prefer that sort of kinesthetic visual style learning. Um, so that kind of assess would change the way you like trained or change the way you might approach them would change the way, um, you would develop a strategy of change management around them, all of that. Yeah. Have you noticed, because you mentioned something else earlier that I think is really important too, and I've already taken so many notes, I've got to scroll back up to go find it, but it was about the, the time issue, giving 
the men and women on the front lines the time to absorb the change. And, and this is about the fifth time this conversation has come up with me just this week. Yeah. And that is that there's, I, I think this is one of the areas that's really different. And I want to explore to, to see your take on this, but I, I feel like the men and women that have more traditional corporate knowledge worker jobs have a little bit more time elasticity to be able to support um, the change that's coming at them. Whereas the, the men and women on the front lines, I, I talked to a retailer this week, they're strapped for resources on the retail store floor. So for taking people out to absorb change, to take training, to do development, you know, professional development, that's time that they're not on the store floor providing improved customer experience, right? It seems that there's less elasticity with time for the men and women in the front lines. What's your take on that? Um, so my take is it's poor change management mm -hmm. in that usually they get it too late, it's the front line. So the aware, so awareness, so change management, talking pro, pro sci, they follow a model called ADCAR, which is the journey folks take you know, from awareness um, all the way through reinforcement. So through their goal life, through everything. And awareness for some organizations, believe it or not, some people, this might be a surprise to, awareness for folks starts after it's live. So, which is like almost hard for me to say, Well, I've seen it before for sure, where something's live or something's changed the process or, you know, a tech technology is released and then that frontline hears about it and then there's pressure to adopt it. And so, and there's little consideration of anything else that's going on at that time for the frontline. So that's a huge error on the change management side for me. Um, and, um, you know, from that awareness perspective, I mean, their input should be there from design. So if you think of, and now we're getting, so now I'll cross into a different model called Addy, which is the training module mod, model that kind of talks about the end-to-end -end life cycle of training. And so that starts with assessment design, then you develop the training, then you implement the training, which is actually the training itself. And there's evaluation where you're evaluating how well it was and reinforcing it. And so usually more commonly than not, the first time frontline gets it is implementation if they even get training. Really, they should be brought in or at least made aware towards in the assessment phase, right? They should be a part of assessment and you should be assessing what you're doing based off of their perspective, which kind of brought me back to instead of leading from the top, you know, almost it should be the opposite. Um, so that's one thought. And then to your other point on being conscientious about time availability is training, right? And how you train. And that brings me to throwing out a lot of terms here, but asynchronous for asynchronous training. And so asynchronous training, well, we'll start with synchronous training. So just think it's all synced. So synchronous would be we're bringing everybody in at the same time, synced together to have a conversation at 2 p.m. tomorrow. Um, and so lots of benefits to that. So I don't want to hate it on too much, but in general, you've seen a huge push, especially as technology has improved to go asynchronous. Uh, how I think about synchronous training or the downside of it is, are you a sports fan at all, Justin? Not, not as much as most of the other guys here in the office. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so take basketball, for instance, when a team starts with basketball. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so when a team starts, like they start getting a real rhythm, right. And they're really dominating the other team. What does the coach do on the other team? Calls, call the time, call the time, call the timeout, right. Yep. Why do they call a timeout? They call a timeout because they got to get them off their flow, right? And there's a lot of great research out there on flow states and things like that and get them off their momentum. 
And to me, synchronous training is like calling a timeout on your own team, right? So, you know, you talk about direct and indirect costs. There's a lot of indirect costs to having someone stop their job, get into a training, get out of a training, go back to what they're doing. Um, and so that's kind of where, where possible, and obviously there's a lot of factors here. There's a lot probably of strength behind asynchronous training and letting people learn themselves or learn on the job at the same time they're doing it with faster feedback. I'm, before we go past that, I, I want to go back to something that you said uh, just briefly at the beginning of this, that there are actually some benefits to synchronous training. I'd like to explore that, right? I'm obviously, uh, you know, passionately involved in, in an async, you know, training yeah. platform, but I'm, I'm curious to understand what some of the benefits are that maybe uh, an async solution is leaving out. Yeah. So it's not always done well, synchronous training. Sometimes yeah. you just get, I mean, probably more, more often than not, you go in a training and you're just, it's a, it's a speech and you're just listening. Um, but the value of synchronous training should be the power of discussion primarily. And that you can have active discussion and you can share ideas between your the people who are attending as well, right? Yeah. So your audience can learn from each other. And then that creates a network for further growth in the future, builds up some of their support networks, things like that. So it lasts, you know, well beyond training. So yeah. I'd say that's kind of one of the, the key things. And there's just sometimes, you know, uh, topics that require depth discussion and long Q&A sessions to really understand the intricacies of it that are tough to pull off with asynchronous training methods. When, when you first were responding to the um, elasticity of time, you responded by kind of talking through ProSci and ADCAR and, and specifically the awareness phase of, of the ADCAR model. And I want to make sure I understood your point. Are you saying that by improving our execution in the awareness phase that we're essentially costing less time overall by being more proactive? I, I'm putting some words in your mouth and I don't mean to do that. I'm, I'm asking this in the form of a question. Is that what you meant by that? Yeah, it's a lot of things. That's one of them. The other key part of why the general trend in change management is bring people in early and inform them early. There's a, an arc to that. So I don't want to say earlier, the better. That's probably not the case. But almost early, the earliest, the better is often um, there's holes in the strategy and frontline folks and manager level above them is going to fill that gap and identify those gaps, which you'd like to have filled before it's actually live and before something breaks or before there's a larger impact that you weren't expecting. Um, so yeah, twofold, that informing them early allows them to start digesting it. A lot of these changes are really big and they have to be brought out in pieces. Um, and you can't do that all right before implementation or in a single training. Uh, and then secondly, they sh will be able to definitely inform your strategy, your processes changing. Um, to make the return again, we'll say it a lot, but make that return on investment faster. Yeah. And if you haven't brought them up to speed earlier in, in the process, then when you actually go to implementation, which is, as you pointed out, something I've observed, which is oftentimes when the frontline workers hear about this transformational initiative is upon implementation. Now you're essentially having to deal with the awareness phase 
right then and there as you're trying to train, as you're delivering that knowledge, right? As you're trying to go through that process. And so it seems to me that if you stretch that process out, ProSize got a great model for this and there are others. If we stretch that out, we can dole out the different phases in bite-sized chunks so that we're not having to compress it all at one time. And to use my example of retail, having to take the entire store, you know, off the store floor so that we can handle this entire end-to-end uh, implementation process at one time, essentially. Yep. Yeah. Nailed it. And I want to be uh, conscious of folks out there in like month-long sprints. So for them, often awareness can't start, you know, you've, you've programmed increment planning a little bit earlier, so you can start doing some there, but often, you know, where that whole ad car phase almost needs to happen month to month, um, at least to some extent. So there's some things you can do to support that, but yeah, I mean, even in that instance, it's the soon, sooner, the better almost always. Yeah. So you mentioned something and I'm going to have to ask you these questions. Uh, it's, it may be a little bit self-serving, but you have some strong opinions about the use of simulations for yeah. system training and, and, yeah for overall digital transformation initiatives. And while I know that you have some strong opinions, I actually don't know a lot about what they are, but I'm dying to hear yeah. about them. Um, obviously this relates a lot to my day job, but I'm just curious to get your take on that. Oh yeah, so similar, yeah. So, okay, so I was in consulting for a while um, and I've been in a couple different consulting jobs and sometimes you don't know. So sometimes you're training when you're consulting, you aren't using your company's training, you're using whatever training they have. Are you consulting on that? So in that world, when I heard they had capability to do simulations for tech adoption, like that's, to me, that's gold. So I would actually almost always in a tech adoption prefer simulations, maybe even over a lower simulation environment with a couple of But Look, let's, lower simulation real environment would be ideal, right? There's just so much that goes along with it to get people loaded correctly to make sure the lower the, the lower environment is as good as progress, production is, is simulating exactly the same bugs and all of that. Um, and puts a lot of stress on your technical and your functional teams. You really don't want to mess with those people. Let them, they're very structured. They're great at what they do. They have, you know, their burn down charts and everything. And you don't want to screw with that too much. So um, yeah, I, so the simulation allows a lot of great things. So asynchronous almost entirely it's on its own so you don't have to load people up you can send it out present presumably to other people even if they aren't going through the change so let's say you're you have multiple phases and so you got a smaller group going first and then your larger groups going later they can see some of it earlier if you wanted to presumably um, and then lastly it's a very controlled environment so especially as somebody is first learning how to do something or how to use a new functionality, you can point them towards where they should click next or what they should focus on, where sometimes just dropping somebody into a large environment is pretty over-consuming and having them starting to develop, call them mental models, develop mental models and how they should be using it can get a little too complex when you have so much in, you know, some things like Salesforce that where there's a lot of buttons to click, a lot of places to go, most of the functionality you're not even using. So yeah, there's another benefit of simulations is being able to show at the same time as they're learning it on their screen, even better, how to go and where to point. Um, and then they can be used afterwards. So let's say you forgot. There's no going back to the lower environment. You're just thrown in this larger environment. Some organizations have built in layover learning on their actual production environment. Most don't, but you can go back to the simulation now, which is 
you know, so helpful. So you can go back to like home base and start back with the foundations. Yeah. You know, something that you're reminding me of that kind of ties back with the concept of, uh, or the thought about anxiety and the impact that it has on users. We started getting some feedback from users about their, I'm just going to use a general term of kind of paranoia of learning inside a live environment and huh. that were concerned that they were going to break something, right? We got a lot of yeah. feedback, various yeah. ways of saying we were nervous about using the system because we didn't want to do something wrong. Huh. And it, that was really an interesting perspective to me because I, um, I don't enter into things like that with that same natural hesitancy. Maybe I have too much confidence for my own good sometimes. And when it comes to that kind of thing, I would have been petrified singing in front of an audience in, in seventh yeah. grade. Okay. I don't have confidence yeah. there, but when it comes to a technology, I'm generally pretty uh, comfortable going into that. I don't get nervous about it at all. So it didn't occur to me that others enter into that process with, it's really uh, paralyzing that they're really nervous that they're going to make a mistake and that they'll be called out or that they'll break something and, and cause irreparable damage or something like that. And um, so that, that wasn't obvious to me until we started getting some of that feedback from, from real humans on the other side of that. And it made me realize that the, the idea of simulations, part of it is not just giving them a simulation, it's actually letting them know that it's impossible for them to break something. So to the extent that it's possible, mm-hmm. you know, we want to convey to them that no matter what you do, you can't break anything here, right? So this is your opportunity to go learn in a safe space and, you know, again, to the extent possible, lower your anxiety so that you can feel comfortable and really open your mind to learning. And then only when you're ready, will you be dropped out, you know, into the deep end, um, you know, where, where then you're going to actually be in a production system. Yeah. And then to add to that, going back to the business case of it, with a sim- in your exact scenario for simulation, go live, they're off and running, Right. The alternative, so which would be like a lack of change management or non-managed change would be they're thrown into the deep end, right? On day one, and we've seen this happen. So, so and this happens a lot, especially in agile. So throwing the deep end, they go in, they have all the anxieties you described, which was an interesting insight I hadn't thought of. But on top of that, maybe that functionality just isn't good yet. You know, they threw it out there too early. So they try it, it sucks. So they're like, all right, I'm not gonna use this for a little while. So we've had instances where they tried it, which is great, it's exactly what we want them to do. Stopped using it because it wasn't ready for them because they bad job finding out if it was gonna be minimally viable. Then they improve it. So they make an enhancement the next month. The employee doesn't know about it. So they aren't use, they don't use it for six months. It's six months later. You have zero return on your investment on all your sunk costs on developing that functionality. And then they find out it's usable. And then you have to remind them basically retraining what original purpose of it, why it was there, how to use it. Um, so yeah, just added more horrible user experience, bad change management for the front line. You know, one of our other guests early on in the series, Doug Icorn from Whole Foods talked about the challenges of agile software development, oh, specifically as it relates to, to frontline workers and that what he was advocating for, which I, I love and, and totally agree with, is that just because we're building software agile and we're doing new releases every two or three weeks or whatever the case may be, doesn't mean that we need to expose the frontline workers to all of that. Yeah. Time, right. Yeah. We need to give them a break. And it's for a few reasons. Yeah. Some of it is for the part that you just said, which is, you know, that change may not really be ready for prime time 
let's give it a little yeah. bit of time to, to settle in and make sure that it's really ready to impact those, those of our organization that are right in front of the customer, um, recognizing that they've, they've got a lot to do, but also because they have a lot to do and they don't need to have change doled out to them, you know, every two weeks. Right. Yeah. So let's be a little bit more strategic with the approach that we take to, yes, I get it. It's more effective and efficient from an app development standpoint that makes the dev team more efficient, but how are we going to let the people that are affected by that change actually absorb it and see it? And we can control that. Right. And we should be more thoughtful about that. So we can make sure that we're allowing them to be successful. Yeah, exactly. I, I you can tell probably from how excited I get on this topic, I could talk about it all day, but a couple ads just quickly that come to mind when you say that is one, it's like, stop messing with my job, man. Things are pretty good. I'm doing fine. You know, like I'm pretty successful and you just, I just keep, you keep changing how I need to do my job every month. And then secondly, uh, I saw in an organization back in like the consulting days, they had monthly releases, which is fine. That's cool. Their training method going back to like asynchronous synchronous. And this was for sales makers. So huge profit your, this is where all your profits coming from you're invited you don't know what you're learning until you're there two and a half hour training this is every month no targeted training so it's just we're going to show all the functionality you come for two and a half hours the parts you'll need are the parts you get and so it's just like my i just can't imagine pretty large organization so imagine you know you're thinking cost analysis you're thinking two and a half hours how much is a sales maker worth? 700 sales makers, 700 times two and a half every month. I mean, it's like really, it can get wild. But on the other side of it, agile is difficult and we aren't great at it yet. Um, and a lot of people don't know what it means either. So like for the longest time, whenever we got new software, it was good, you know? <laughs> so really hard for a worker to grasp like, okay, I need to understand that this first iteration they need my feedback on it, like how it's going to end up being what we're going to be awesome at in the future is by releasing it to me a little early so I can test it out or not release it for your example um, and just have some like a smaller group test it. But so I can test it out and then get feedback on it and we can iterate together. That's the whole point of agile is that we can iterate over time. It's not perfect at first, but for folks who don't know and are you know, informed on how that process works, it's really frustrating because it's like, force me to change my job. The thing doesn't even work. I don't even want to use it. Like, why do we just making this change without any of my input? And, and we're, we're eroding the trust between yeah, definitely. You know, the, the men and women on the front lines versus the people that are actually causing that change. We're just breaking down that trust between those, those folks and actually putting up barriers instead of breaking them down. Yeah, nailed it. We're setting ourselves up by doing what you just described. We're not setting ourselves up for success either. So not only are we making their lives miserable, but we're actually holding back the success. And as you said several times today, the ROI and the overall project, right? So yeah. we need to take a deep breath, think about the change management and the training implications of that and really put this, this plan on, on a path for success. And um, there's so many examples that you've shared with today and, and other guests have shared about um, it's not super complicated. I, I, we always, it seems that this show always comes around as saying it's, it's not easy, but it is simple. It's not easy because there's a lot of pushback in the organization and there are cultural drivers that are kind of yeah. causing these things to want to happen, but we're not talking about putting people on the moon, right? This isn't rocket science. Um, it actually is just about really being thoughtful and, and empathetic to uh, the needs of the, the men and women that are affected by this and to uh, just think better about how we can implement that change. Yeah. Yes. It's, 
Yeah, it's, I think you said it well. It's one thing I think about a lot that's like the really challenging part is um, like, so we kind of talked a little bit about how companies need to be agile or majority of them need to start adapting fast. So we're getting to the point almost, well, maybe for some industries, probably we're past the point where like consistency and quality is maybe more important than adaptability. So organizations need to change, right? So they're kind of forcing agile on the people without the culture being ready to accept agile. So culture is not really exactly my full expertise or anything like that, but Drucker was noted anyway. I don't Word's still out if he actually said, or he was the originator of this, but uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yep. So strategy of agile, brilliant for most people, makes total sense. Couldn't do it fast enough. But if your culture is not there, doesn't understand it, isn't ready to adopt it, it's not going to be successful. So you have to have, I mean, I almost think almost every organization right now should have a couple key programs. One is around change management, improving maturity of change management at down to the leadership level, or even the frontline level, I would say, but you know, leaders should have at least some level of onboarding training of change management. And then two is like a culture of agility. Um, and there should be specific people who are accountable for improving a culture of agility, in my opinion. Yeah. We're coming up on time. I, I do want to ask you one more kind of personal question. What do you think is the contribution that that you've made throughout your career that you're most proud of that you'd like to share with us ah, the contribution wow what a big question those are the other ones about business were so easy and now you I, you have to turn the camera back on me um the show's about you <laughs> i think i think i'm not that's, that's hilarious that's um so I'd like to think I'm not in my latter stage of my career yet. So I'd like to think I'm just getting started, but I think it's developing other people to think more about people it would be what I hope my contribution is so far, but if I leave something behind, it would be developing others, I think. That's, that's a fantastic way for us to, uh, to wrap up the call today. And I really appreciate uh, you joining. And uh, I'm glad that even though it took us many months to finally get uh, on the books that we were able to get this done today. So Matt, thank you uh, very much for your time. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, Justin. I got a chance to check you all out and um, I love what you all doing. You heard how passionate I was about simulations and things like that. Um, super excited to check out more of your podcasts for sure and get to know some of your other past guests. So I just appreciate your time as always and looking forward to staying connected. Well, as I've mentioned, our guests of the podcast, after we uh, do the recording, get to come and participate in something called the Frontline Innovators Council. That is a private group that we have on LinkedIn. And we also meet once a month on the first Friday of every month to share ideas and uh, ask questions of one another. It's a great form, uh, format for uh, networking and just uh, collaborating with others across a variety of industries and companies. So uh, we'll be welcoming you into that organization. Look forward to your participation there. For our audience, I do need to wrap it up. I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And uh, if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings, specifically with Apple Podcasts, uh, really help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. 
podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for other guests on the show. So if you know somebody out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, share your story or their story. And uh, hopefully we can get them on the show. Matt, thanks again for your time today. Thanks, Justin. Take care. Thank you.